those of you who are visiting, I'm Cube Witten. I'm a deacon, Sunday school teacher. Uh, my family and I, we've been at Holland Avenue for about three years now. Uh, my personal ministry to Dow is to always have a sermon um, ready, just in case he gets sick or anything. And so it, after I taught the last time, I started prepping uh, a new sermon, and the timing as well. Interesting, I didn't plan this, but it's, it's on mourning the loss of a loved one. So we'll be in John chapter 11 this morning. Just want to thank Emily and Stacy, other musicians. The choir just sounded, they always sound just so fantastic. Brad's doing a great job. Well, pray with me, please. Father, we ask your blessing on our time this morning. We ask that you would, as we look into your scripture, that we would see Jesus Christ, our wonderful Savior, our wonderful Lord. Help us to see that he cares for us. Help us to see that he knows all. Help us to see that he directs all things. And that's why we trust him. Father, I pray that as we look at this book that has over the years become just so precious to us, help us not to neglect it. But in this time, I pray that it would grow even more precious to us. We just pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. I was waiting for a flight in LaGuardia and just sitting at the terminal, my plane just arrived, and the TSA made a very strange announcement. Uh, they got on and they said, you know, we are deplaning, but on this flight was the remains of a World War II soldier. And so they, they were bringing him off in a coffin, uh, wrapped with a flag, and it was just very moving, and they said, please stand for this uh, World War II veteran from the 82nd Airborne. 73 years, he was recovered, and now he's being brought home to uh, his final resting place, and they said, please stand in honor of this, uh, this hero who is coming home. And it was just so moving, I found myself weeping for this complete stranger, not only because of the sacrifice, but because of, you know, uh, the final homecoming, and, and with the great respect that the TSA treated him. You may have studied, uh, growing up, Catullus, you may know, know the name, he is a famous Roman poet, he has whimsical poems, but what's very interesting, he has about 116 poems. When his brother died, he writes this poem that is unlike his other poems. And it, it's just so moving, and it's so, uh, you can feel his pain even though it's 2,000 years ago. He says things like, I'm here for these wretched funeral rites, and I'm speaking pointlessly to these ashes that can't even speak. We have examples all throughout scripture of people mourning. You may not, this one may not come to mind, but Jacob, when his son is supposedly is dead, he mourns. Genesis says, Jacob tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. And you remember, Jacob, he has 12 sons, and Joseph uh, is sold as a slave uh, 
uh, into Egypt, to Egypt, and he is, they tell their father that he's dead. He was torn apart by a wild animal. So his father mourns for his son. And he says, he despairs of life. He says, this, I, I can barely hang on. And then, when Joseph orchestrates events and he wants Benjamin brought to Egypt, Jacob, he says, if you take this one too also from me and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. He can barely hang on with the first son and the second son. It's just too much. He's going to despair of life. He doesn't even want to live anymore. He says, no, it's, it's just too much, please. You know, we, we study Job, but we gloss over the loss of his children. It becomes just one bullet point in the litany of things that happened to Job. But that had to have been a, an incredible blow for this house to just fall on all of his children. And they're all dead. His friends come, and in Job 2.13 it says, They sat on the ground for him, with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word. For they saw that his pain was great. We gloss over this loss, but it was tremendous. A tremendous loss to lose all your children in one fell swoop. We look at David. His best friend was Jonathan. And Jonathan's father, we know, was King Saul, and he was a big bummer of a king. I mean, he tried to, how many times did he try to kill David? And yet, when they die, and we quote this all the time, oh, how the mighty have fallen. We quote it as a jeer, but it is not a jeer. It was sincere. He truly mourned not only Joseph, his best friend, but he mourned King Saul, and he wept. It says they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the people of the Lord in the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. In the book of Acts, chapter 20, we see this heartfelt scene Paul is on his way back from his third missionary journey, and he's told divinely, prophetically, that he is going to go to jail. And so he thinks this is it. He thinks he's going to be taken out at this point. And so on the way back, he orchestrates, since he pastored in Ephesus for three years, he wanted to meet the elders. So he sends word, and he says, guys, meet me uh, on the way back. I'm going to Jerusalem, but I'll swing my ship in. Come meet me. And so you have this tearful meeting in chapter 20 of uh, the book of Acts, where they just, they, they cling to each other and they weep because they think this is the last time they're ever going to see Paul again. They're already mourning the loss of Paul. I mean, shouldn't these elders, Paul ministered here for three years, shouldn't they have great theology? And there, there's no reason for weeping because they're going to see him in heaven. We're not robots. And this assumes that mourning and weeping is wrong, and it is not. It is perfectly natural. One of the most profoundly touching scenes in all the Bible is one with which we're very familiar with. Even Hollywood is familiar with it. It's Joseph, which we talked about a little bit. But when he is sold as a slave into Egypt, when Benjamin comes to him, He's overcome. He, it's almost as if it's involuntary. He can't control his emotions. It says he lifted up his eyes. He saw his brother, Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, is this your youngest brother? 
of whom you spoke to me? And he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. And it says, Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred over his brother. And he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. He couldn't control it. And it's not as though, ah, Joseph, be a man, just control yourself. It was perfectly natural for him to weep because he was mourning loss, not death, but loss of years of the betrayal. It brought up the pain that he's lost how much, how much time with his, without his father, without his brother. And then finally, when he reveals himself to his brothers, <laughs> he can't hold it in any longer. It says Joseph couldn't control himself. He says, have everyone go out from me. And so there was no one there but him and his brothers. It says he wept so loudly the Egyptians heard it. The household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said finally to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? I bring up these passages because mourning and weeping is perfectly natural. It's almost, as I said, involuntary. Joseph can't control his emotions. He's overcome. But mourning and weeping is so natural to us humans that we learn in Revelation 21 that it is going to take a supernatural event for us to stop mourning and weeping. All of creation has to go out of existence for us to stop weeping. We all have to be resurrected before we stop mourning and weeping. Death and Hades have to be thrown into the lake of fire before we stop weeping and mourning. The entire known universe will have to be destroyed and recreated for us to stop mourning. At a deacon's meeting once at a different church, they asked, hey, what's your favorite gospel? And I don't have to think about that. It's John. John's gospel is very special. And when you, and not to say that the other gospels aren't special as well, but you look at the gospel of John, and it, the circumstances of it writing are 60 years after Christ uh, has been crucified. 60 years. John is writing this as an old man uh, in probably 94, 92, 94 A.D., 60 years after Christ was crucified. And so how many times in the church was John, the Apostle John asked, tell us more about Christ that's not contained in these other Gospels. Um, because you remember at the end of John it says, you know, many other things happen and if they were written down, not even the world could contain them. So he had all these other stories that the Lord doesn't give to us. But in the first century in God's sovereignty, he could relate to the church. And so 60 years later, he says, well, God told him to write a gospel, and so he writes down the, this, this other gospel, and it has a lot of stories that the others don't have. The man born blind, imagine, we wouldn't have that. Imagine how John starts out, in the beginning was the word. What a unique and amazing uh, beginning to the gospel of John. We have the high priestly prayer, where the prayer, the prayer of Christ in the garden is recorded. We wouldn't have that. And really, there's no other gospel that is as comforting as John's gospel. When you look at uh, chapters 13 to 17, this is right before the eve that Christ is crucified. And he knows these disciples are going to need comfort 
And so that's the comfort of John 13, 14, where he says things like, I go to prepare a place for you. Or he says things like, I will keep you. Or he prays for them and he says, Father, keep them when I go. You can't follow me, but I will not leave you alone. I will send another helper. And really, when you look at the disciples mourning the loss of Christ, we gloss over that scripture. They had come to know that this was the Son of God. And we know from John 5, that doesn't mean lower than God. John 5 tells us that they were calling, he was calling God his own Father, the Son of God, making himself equal with God. They knew what that meant. And so for the disciples to see Jesus Christ on the cross and die, what kind of despair would they have had of life? And so they needed that comfort that Christ knew they would need. And finally, we have John 11, just one of the most precious passages in all of Scripture. The raising of Lazarus. And yet, the real power in this passage for those who are suffering, for those that are in trial, for those that are grieving, is actually not Lazarus's resurrection, but it's his death. Don't get me wrong, the raising of Lazarus was amazing and it proved Jesus Christ is who he says he was. It authenticated his ministry and it showed that Jesus Christ truly is the resurrection and the life. He had the power over death to raise Lazarus. But when tragedy strikes, we need to go to John chapter 11 because it shows us God knows what is happening to you because he knows all things and he's sovereign over all things. God's ways are not always our ways. God is sovereign over all for his own glory. And last, God demonstrate, demonstrates his care for us. Well, first, God knows what is happening to you because he knows all things and he's sovereign over all things. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, the sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, Skip to verse 11. This he said, and after that he, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of his sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. God knows all things. He's in control of all things. We say God is sovereign, but do we really believe that? Because what does that really mean? Well, let me ask you this. If, if a king is sovereign, what does that mean? It means he does as he pleases. 
Why were you born in the year that you were born? Did that have anything to do with you? Did it have anything to do with your parents? Who created your soul? Who made you who you are? Who fashioned your body when it was in the womb? Who allows your heart to keep beating? Who allows you to take yet one more breath? Who knows all your days, all the hairs of your head are numbered? Could the Lord have stopped Job's trials? Could the Lord stop your trials? Don't forget, Satan had to get permission for everything that he did to Job. Could he have stopped Lazarus from dying? That's even a question that's asked by uh, the Jews. When he's there, they say, could this man have stopped Lazarus from dying? Jesus knew what was about to happen. He knew that Lazarus was going to die. In fact, that's why he stayed another two days before they traveled to Bethany. He knew exactly what was going to happen. Do you understand that? He knew that he had to let Lazarus die. And he knew that this would cause Martha and Mary great pain and that they would be mourning, even to be tempted to revile Christ. Because isn't this our friend? Why is he not here? He's eradicated sin and illness in Israel for three years and he doesn't come. He's just a few miles down the road. How could he do this to us? When tragedy happens in our life, we are tempted to blame God because we know he's sovereign. How could this happen to me? Why would God allow this in my life? And these, I mean, these times are hard. They shake our foundations to the very core and we try to hold on to the truth that we have. But we get tempted, sorely tempted to question God because we feel like our lives are collapsing. This wasn't supposed to happen like this. this. Sometimes we think we're indestructible and we're, you know, where's the camera? Oh, I'm the star of the show. Nothing bad can happen to me. I'm the star. He knows all things and he's directing all things. And therefore he knew Lazarus would have to die. And he knew that Mary and Martha would question him, question his authority. Wouldn't it be a scary thought to think that God doesn't know what's coming next? That would be incredibly terrifying. That as events are a surprise to you and I, that they're a surprise to God? No. He is directing all events. He knew it was going to happen in Bethany, just like he knows what's going to happen in Columbia. And it's a staggering thought when you, when you couple that with how many people there are on the planet. As a child, I remember going to malls. And, you know, mall parking lots are huge. There's just so many cars. I remember being a small child and just looking around going, saying, there are so many cars here. One of them has to be mine. Or you go to a, a huge town like Beijing or New York, and you look at all the people and you, you wonder and you say, how can God hear all those prayers? How is he directing all these events? I don't think we can fathom just how infinite he is in his knowledge. 
Well, God's ways are not our ways. The Lutheran commentator Lenski says, human love would have hurried, would have rushed to Bethany with all speed to arrive, if possible, before death set in. Divine love acts otherwise and also has the divine knowledge for its work. If Hollywood had written this story, they would have changed it. Uh, Christ would have gotten there before Lazarus dies, heals him, and they would have lived happily ever after. But imagine what Christ knew. As he is omniscient, he knows he's going to have to wait two days. He knows he has to let him die. He, he knows that he's going to come to a scene of mourning. And he knew Mary and Martha, as we said, would question him. They would be mourning and weeping. And he, these are his dear friends. He doesn't want to see them hurting. He's humble infinitely humble enough to be reviled in their hearts, even though he knew the result would be for the glory of God. Even 2,000 years later, when we study this passage, we can't always see as clearly as John 11. You know, we see the end of John 11, Lazarus raised, and we say, oh, yeah, it had a happy ending. But that's not our life. We don't always see God's purposes on this side of glory. And I think this is problematic in our minds. Um, it's not problematic for God, but it's problematic for us because we think we need to see the silver lining. If we can't see the silver lining, if we can't see God working, something's wrong. It must be senseless. But whoever said that we needed to see all of God's purposes this side of glory. How do we presume to understand what's in the mind of an infinite God? We are so finite. We are so small. <laughs> we are we're dust. How can we expect to understand all his purposes? Even the, in the eternal state, we are not going to be omniscient, and we will not understand everything. Now, he'll be there, and we can ask him whatever we want. But that's going to take an eternity, all of eternity, trying to figure out God's providence. And even then, we won't fully do it. Well, God is sovereign over all for his glory. Everything happens in John 11 just as it was supposed to happen. Christ came to the earth just as it was supposed to happen. We learn that from Acts 2. It, God calls it God's predetermined plan. Isaiah says that, you know, he knows the end from the beginning. It didn't just happen by chance. All events in history are pointing toward Christ. Even the betrayal in Luke 22, 22, he says this was determined to happen. John 10 says he lays his life down. The Romans didn't take it. The Jews didn't take it. Uh, the high priest didn't take it. It wasn't Herod. It wasn't anyone. Christ laid his life down of his own accord. God intervenes in history, and Mary is divinely with child. This was not a coincidence. This is God himself orchestrating all events for his own glory. 
And now all of that was actually just a introduction for our final, final point, because this is the comfort that we see in this passage. God demonstrates his care over us. Simply an introduction to finally get to John 11.35. Let's read a few verses before that. In verse 32, therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him, fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews came with her, also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit. He was troubled and said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. Jesus Christ, the creator of all. He looks at his marred creation. It was once perfect. It was once good. Perfectly created in six solar days. It was perfect. And now he looks around at his marred creation and he sees death. And we know that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. He knows. He didn't create it this way. This is what happened because of the fall. When Adam plunged all of us into sin, this is the result. Death and mourning. And this is why we mourn. So the Lord of all looks around. And he mourns what his creation had become. And look what it does. It, it causes weeping. That's the power of the, this passage in the midst of our tragedy, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our suffering. We can look at Jesus Christ, our sympathetic high priest, who looks around at us and knows just how horrendous it is to go through loss. He weeps himself. He sees Mary at his feet, distraught, depressed, despairing. And notice, what does he say to her to comfort her? This is the Lord of all. He knows everything. He created this woman who was at his feet. He says nothing to comfort her. He comforts her with his own tears. And he does what he tells us to do in Romans 12, 15. Weep with those that weep. Let's not be like Job's friends. Job's friends, they had perfect theology. They had perfect theology. They knew their, their word backwards and forwards. But they totally missed the point. Because do you know what they said to Job? Do you remember? They said, your children died because of your sin, Job. What a horrible thing to say. And God is angry with them at the end of the book of Job for it. They sit with him for seven days and seven nights, and they were incredibly wise until they opened up their mouths. The Lord of all shows he, his care for us when he weeps. And this, why, this is why this passage can comfort us in our affliction. It shows his heart 
his sympathetic heart toward us fallen humans. Isn't that comforting? Jesus Christ is truly God. He's truly man. And the, the divine which knows the truth about the pain and suffering that is caused by the garden informs the human expression of Christ's weeping. So don't be so quick to go to John 11 to Lazarus being raised because in tragedy you want to hold on to John 11:35. There's tremendous power and comfort in knowing that he is our sympathetic high priest. Many preachers come to this passage and they say, "Well, you know, he could have he knew what he was going to do. It just really in a few seconds he was going to be raising Lazarus." He said, "Oh, Mary, don't cry. Just come with me to the tomb. You'll see what's going to happen. It's going to be it's going to be pretty amazing. Come on, I'm going to raise him. There's no need to cry. There's no need to mourn. Just come with me. Don't be silly." Do you know why he doesn't do that? Because my loved ones were not raised, and your loved ones were not raised. And so we need this passage when he weeps. We need him to be the sympathetic high priest. When he sees them mourning, it's real. And just because Lazarus is raised, our loved ones are not raised in our lives. And so for 2,000 years, the millions of people that have loved ones that die, they need John 11. They need to come here and see our high priest sympathetically weeping with us, knowing this isn't the way it should have been feeling the wrongness of death, feeling how unnatural death is, feeling he did not create it this way. He would not have been shown as caring as he was if he would have minimized their grief. And see, that's the whole point. Even, even he knew he was going to raise Lazarus, even still the grief was real. And even after Lazarus was raised, they probably would continue to have weeped because, yes, he's back, but that's how complex our psyche is that we know that at any given moment in time, we can slip off this terrestrial ball. And so that grief was real and even continued to be real even after he was raised because they know the truth of it is that that's where we're all headed. And so, even though we grieve, sometimes for years, sometimes 10 years, there's no timetable. We talk about the stages of grief, that's fine, but don't put people in boxes and think that, you know, you've had two years, that's enough. I mean, can you imagine when someone is married to someone for 50 years, how long does that take? Or even two years. Do not put a timetable on mourning. Pain can be felt all through life. But even though we grieve, even though we are reminded that God cares so much for us, we grieve and we stand on this bank of the Jordan and we, we try to look through the fog to see our loved ones who've died, who are in Christ. 
because we know, we're reminded, that we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We know that we have hope of one day of being reunited. As David says about his child, he can't come to me, I will, I will go to him. But the hope of one day being reunited with those that we love who died in Christ. Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. You are there. I'm there. Our loved ones who were in Christ and died are there. And one day we, will, we shall be reunited and we'll stand on the same shore of the Jordan and we'll see our wonderful Lord. But until then, until that time, he wept. He cares for you.